Um, we're enjoying a series on that. If you want to turn to your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'll be there in a short time. We're looking at uh, the, what to do about uh, the sickness, this, the, the cancer in us, in our souls, the greatest expression of our bent, right? This, this pride that can show up in either arrogance or insecurity, uh, Siamese twins, it's the same thing. It just looks differently sometimes. And it is what keeps us from things, all things that are good. It's the wedge that, uh, that finds itself uh, tearing apart churches it, and relationships and, and marriages, friendships, countries. C.S. Lewis said, pride is the chief cause of every misery in every nation, in every family since the world began. So there. That's all inclusive. And you've come to a good church to hear about pride because I am an expert on pride. As a matter of fact, I am, I'm the proudest person in this room. More proud than every, well, not that guy in the yellow shirt, but besides him, I'm the proudest guy in the room. Because there's pride and then there's stupid pride. I have stupid, stupid pride. I was registering for a class uh, this week. excuse me, at Regent College, which is in Vancouver, which reminded me of a stupid pride moment. The first time I went to the school there, I called a friend who knew a friend that had a condominium that I could stay when I went to the school. And I said, well, is it a nice condominium? And he says, yeah, it's nice. Oh, it was nice. It was $5 million nice. It was a very nice condominium, and it, it, was, uh, it had a beautiful view of, of, if you know Vancouver, of, of Coal Harbor and the actual convention center that's award-winning architecture. You look straight out the window, you saw the North Shore Mountains, and you saw giant cruise ships coming in and going out all day long on their trips to Alaska and the cruise lines there. Uh, if, if you looked out the left side of the window there, you could see their version of Central Park called Stanley Park, where Melinda would ride her little bike through the park, and I would longboard with her, pleasant as can be. came with its own bald eagle we could see from our unit. <laughs> and then, you know, after a couple days there, we got attitude, and when we would look down at the poor people below us... <clears throat> Even the yachts there had matching helicopters. He had taken it, you can see the helipad, but he had taken it for a run, maybe to get some wine or something. So the hardest part about this experience with us was the parking, honestly, because right behind my little rental car was a Carrera GT. This car cost $800,000. And I was so afraid to back in, you know, possibly back into it and ding it, I parked in the maid's court, maid's parking spot up on the first floor. I got to drive. Here's a picture of me driving that, that career. That's it. That's, <clears throat> that's like a, and I didn't know this until this morning. I am wearing Crocs in that picture sitting next to a career GT. There's some Porsche people that are going to have me killed, run over in the parking lot just for that. Okay. All of that, all of that is to tell you the stupid pride story. So one of the last days, I think the last day we were there, I was waiting downstairs for Melinda to come and, and, and go through one more walk in the park and just sitting on a park bench right beneath the unit. And some people were there. Everybody's friendly. And we got talking to some, I got talking to some strangers. Where are you from? You know, and going to go on a cruise tomorrow. And I just got like, so where'd you stay last night? Uh-huh. Where'd you stay last night? Where'd you stay last night? Come on, ask me. Ask me. <laughs> okay. Where did you stay? Oh, <laughs> 
I stayed right up there on the 23rd floor of that place right there. See the, see the, the, the furniture out on the, on the patio and the, that chair or the, whatever, the tree on the patio? That's, that's where I stayed. The whole time I'm talking, I can, just, I can just feel my ego being inflated with every sentence. And I was trying to stop it, but I couldn't. I'm, I'm sitting there going, oh, my goodness. I, this is, I want my identity to be attached to, to a living quarter that doesn't belong to me. It belongs to a friend of a friend. That friend, I would not know that woman that owns the unit if she walked up and shook, her, and, and shook my hands. That's how far removed I was from it. But you know what? This guy, he needs, to me, he needs to know me as the person that stayed in that unit. Oh, good heavens. It, it's just it's boasting and bragging and comparing. It is amazing what pride can have you do. Logic doesn't have to be in the equation when we talk about pride. The idea of identity, that's kind of the theme today, is, is a projection of who you are. And technically... It's not really that. It is who you want to be, who you think you ought to be. That's how <clears throat> your, it, the e, it's the center of your ego, and it's trying to find a place that's safe. And so we, we, are, we are puffing ourselves up, and we're putting ourselves out there for others. We're making major decisions regularly about what will best feed that self-image that we need. And so we judge ourselves, we judge other people. We don't get to live because we're so busy doing all these things. It destroys joy. This identity, finding our identity anywhere outside of what the Word of God says will suck joy right out of our lives. And Paul comes in and says, you, you don't have to be that way. You could be the person that, that you know, doesn't need honor or, or can receive honor and, 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 and you're not afraid of it. You're not driven with a lust for you know, recognition. Or if you are recognized, it doesn't cause you to be frightened. Paul says you can live a whole different way. You can be free. You could, you could be so free. You could be so self-forgetful that you could accomplish something at work or with a hobby or whatever, something beautiful. And you could look at that with the objectivity of, of appreciating and celebrating a sunset. You could say about something you did, it's, wow, that's well done, and, and not inflate anything within, you know, your, your psyche. And Paul's point is saying, he's saying you can have all of that. You can actually enjoy life. <laughs> you can be in the moment of life. You don't have to be constantly working on your resume. And so Paul's writing this book, especially in these early chapters, 1 Corinthians, he's writing with that audience in mind and that ambition in mind to set them free, right, to, to make sure that they understand they're redeemed. And he's in, in, in the context that we're reading, so that you'll understand the passage more, their issue, their identity was wrapped up in celebrity pastors. And, and so they made, they made pastors, they pitted pastors against each other, and then they attached themselves to the better one. I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. I'm with, you know, Cephas. And, and they, first of all, they weren't even enjoying necessarily these men that were teaching. They were enjoying being attached to them so that they could push them, they could attach their ego to them. And Paul comes in and says, stop it. That is a stupid way of finding a self-esteem. 
It is destroying the church, and it will kill your soul. And so he, he takes it on straight up. It looks, we can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and then I'll jump into chapter 4. It'll be on the screens. Here's what I want you to be like keenly looking out for, by the way, as we go through this. Look at the phrases and words that are comparatively speaking, you know, judging people, the idea of being proud and boastful, because that's the theme. Look at the repetition of those phrases as well. Verse uh, 21 through 23 of chapter 3 says, So let no one boast in men, like boast in Paulus or Paul. Don't let anybody boast in men. For, for all things are yours, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas or, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. It's all yours. <laughs> you, you are Christ's and, and Christ is God's. Stop fighting about this silly stuff. You have Christ. And then he goes on to chapter 4. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I have a my conscience is clear. It doesn't mean I'm innocent. Uh, it's the Lord who judges me. Verse 6, I have applied all things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. I'm showing you as an example, brothers, that you may learn by us to not go beyond what is written, that none of you would be, it's a very strange word, so I threw different translations in there, so that none of you would be proud, none of you would be arrogant or puffed up in favor of one against another. For you see everything different in, uh, for, uh, for who sees anything different in you? He, what do you have that you haven't received? And, and you received it, why would you boast about it as if you did not receive it? Everything you have was given from God and now you're bragging about, you're boasting about it. So you, you see, this is the subject matter that Paul's talking about. There, your identity cannot be found in anywhere outside of the Bible because it's impossible, and it's kind of stupid. Look, look what he says in, in that one phrase there. I want you to see in verse 6. He says that none, that none of you would be proud or arrogant or puffed up. Puffed up is the literal translation some of your Bibles will have. It's a very strange word for pride. That's why they didn't use the word pride. They used arrogant instead. Uh, it, it's it's, as a matter of fact, no author in the New Testament uses that word. Paul uses it seven times in all of his writings, six times in 1 Corinthians. So the point is, Bible scholars will tell you, Paul's chosen a word for a purpose for this type of illness, the Corinthian illness, being proud and, and what, is he, what is he calling it, puffed up. It's the idea... What some scholars will say is Paul is saying this is the state of the bent human ego. It is, it is empty. It is wanting. It is afraid of being empty. And so it puffs up. Uh, some other uh, literal translations not of, the, of the word itself would, would be swollen, engorged, bloated past its natural size. In other words, it, it, you can't recognize it anymore, and it could explode. <laughs> and that's the nature of the ego, that it's empty, and so we fill it, we fill the void with, with nothing, <laughs> nothing of substance. So, oddly enough, we've taken, taken this word, and, and we have our own expressions for that. We say, that person is full of themselves, right? We, we would say, that, that, that woman is, is full of hot air, 
inflating. It's going to pop. It's going to pop. How can, how can that guy get his ego through the doorway? See this idea of swelling? And so if you look, that's, that's the purpose of Paul using that word. Kierkegaard, in his Sickness Unto Death, talks about this fragile state of the human psyche that is knowing and haunted by emptiness, trying to find uniqueness. You know, the, each of us is trying to find ourselves to be special in some way. And the ultimate expression of sickness unto death is thinking in our pride we can find purpose outside of God, identity outside of God, anything outside of God. And so we keep trying to fill this infinite void, and it's with nothing but air. Constantly busy, constantly filling with things that don't matter. It's, uh, it's, it's an exhausting ambition to find ourselves like this because uh, everything we look at is being evaluated in the in whether we win, it, it gets us more or it looks bad on us. Something so that we can be boasting or comparing. It's the program in the back of our minds that's in the front of our souls that's always running. It's, it's why your, you know, your laptop fan turns on. What's going on? What's this program that's running? This is the one. This sickness unto death trying to find and compare and boast and brag or be turned down, you know. The, the, court, the court of your value is always in session. You're evaluating yourself and comparing yourself. You're evaluating others and comparing with others. And that's why it says in verse 6, then you will not take, you will, so that you will not take pride in one over against the other. One guy's better than that guy. And we're saying that in our own life as well, so that, so that we can boast. Why do we do that? So that we can boast. Used twice in this uh, context, in these two little paragraphs. And boast means brag about. It says, recommend yourself. To recommend yourself. And, and so, so it looks like this. Every person, every event, every choice, career possibilities, where you're going to, are you going to take this project or not take this project? All of them are being evaluated on whether or not we're, it's good for how we're going to look. Uh, yeah, look, I'm not against social media, so don't misunderstand. I mean, it's fun. It's, it's a great way to catch, keep up with friends, that sort of things. But we, it's, you, can, you can see it with the extremes easily on social media, where people go places and do things not to enjoy the place, not to enjoy the event, but to be seen enjoying the event. To, to, Blaise Pascal said, people travel not to enjoy the destination, but so they can tell their friends later. Blaise Pascal said that in the 1500s. In his section on pride, he says, we travel so we can tell other people where we've been. So we take a job because... Not necessarily because we're good at it or we even like it, but because it looks best on us. We choose where we're going to go or what we're going to do because of that. It, the, the program's always running, and the running is running us into the ground. And Paul says, look, it doesn't have to be that way. You can live another way. You can live free. You can step away from that court and, and leave it forever and then live. <laughs> he's, he's offering us life. 
you know, just free from these chains that hold us back. And, and here's how he's going to do it. This is critical. It's, it's, it's not common. It's essential, though. He's going to apply the gospel to this, this ego need. This ego, he's going to take the death, resurrection, forgiveness that comes, the Spirit of God, the whole package of the gospel. He's going to apply it to the ego emptiness. He's going to say, look, this redemption, it applies in our psyche, right? And, and he wants to attach your identity to the gospel itself in our relationship with God. He's trying to, he's trying to change, I guess in some respects, it's a, it's a metaphor in the passage. He's changing the courthouse altogether. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should, should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear. It does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. The word judge there means verdict. And he says this, I don't care what your verdict of me is. And then he gets broader. He says, I don't care what the verdict of it, uh, for any court, any human court, great words, any human court, I don't care their verdict on me. And then, and then listen, he doesn't do what, what we would generally do. If someone came to us and they were suffering from this ego identity thing, from the, this darkness in our soul, we, and they would say, oh, I can't, you know, I'm having to live under the expectations of my parents and my friends, and, and I'm, I want to make everybody happy. We would say, oh, don't live under their judgment. Don't care about their verdict. And then we would immediately go to Shakespeare, wouldn't we? We all quote Shakespeare. We'd say, to thy own self be true. You know, you should live within, what, what do you want to be? What do you want to do? How do you want to evaluate yourself? You think you're a good person, then you're a good person. And Paul does not do that. He says, I don't even judge myself. And then he says, look, I, my conscience is cleared, but it doesn't mean I'm innocent. I mean, he, he, I don't care about your verdict. I don't care about any natural court's verdict. I don't care about my verdict. Here's what he's saying. I'm not even going to play the stupid game that wins stupid prizes. I'm not even going into that courthouse. Why? Why? What happens there that's good? If you don't play stupid games, you don't get stupid prizes. That courtroom, it's rigged. All you do is work and nobody wins. There's no real finish. He says the freedom, he says only the Lord judges him. And his freedom in the context of leaving that other courtroom where everybody's judging all the time, it gives him the effect of this self, of, of self-forgetfulness and this other identity. It gives him self-awareness. And so Paul, when he's even saying, look, I don't even judge myself, he, he can say now, because he's confident in who he is, he can say in 1 Timothy, towards the end of his ministry, it's one of the last books he wrote, okay, so on his... He's growing in his life with Christ, and he's almost peaked. And he says, you know, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners, of whom I am the chief of all sinners. Paul says, he's not saying, look, I was the chief of all sinners, like during college, you know, the pirate years and all that. He's saying, right now, I know who I am. I'm desperately sinful, the most sinful person, but... I'm not attaching that to who I, my identity. I'm not, I'm not going to play that game. And kind 
on the, on the reverse side of that, Paul could say, and, and he does in some respects, I'm an apostle. I've confronted Peter. I'm, I've, got, I've written some books, and they're good. But I don't attach that to who I am. I don't attach that to my identity. That's a crazy game, and I don't play crazy games. He says, I'm not going to go into that human court. I won't even walk in it. He says, the Lord, it is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges me. And this is his mantra in his life. It's, that's the program that's constantly playing on his hard drive. Always part of it. The, because who wants to go in, in, in this other courthouse, in this other courtroom where we're judging? Think about it for you, right? Every choice, every motive, every decision is always like an open file for the prosecution or the defense. You're always trying to get to some kind of verdict. It's always exhausting. If things go well, it leads to boasting. If things go, if things go poorly, it leads to division and comparisons. And Paul says, let me tell you something. There's another courtroom. And that trial is over. That verdict has come back. God himself says that I am his, that I belong to him. And I'm just leaving that there. Now, listen, this makes sense. It makes all the sense in the world that can change your life. Every human courtroom over here and every method of finding identity, you are, you are, you are working towards a verdict. The gospel, as it's applied to a person's life, you get a verdict and then you live out the verdict. Let me say it again, maybe in a different way. You are performing, performing, constantly performing, hoping to get a verdict in every human court, except in the gospel court, the verdict has already been declared by the judge, and then you are free to live out the hope of that in your life. It's not so that, it's because of that verdict. And so, you look, you can see this in, in the context of religious expressions of the courtroom, right? Every religion, Mormon, Buddhist, uh, Muslim, almost, I mean, the default religions that we have in our heads. Keep working, keep working, keep working, keep working. You hope, you hope, and then you end up with a verdict. Every single day you're on trial over here. In the, in the social courthouse that we go to, always, always accumulating evidence. Are you skinny enough? Are you athletic enough? Are you successful enough? Are you, do you have enough power? If it's good, it leads to boasting. If not, it leads to a feeling of ruin. And, and the gospel, Christianity over here, it says the verdict, it's done. And, and Romans is filled with declarations of such. It's a, it's a book in the New Testament. But one that comes to mind is if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, his death was your fault. His resurrection proved your bills are paid. His spirit lives inside you. It says, therefore, based on your, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Boom. That's the verdict. It's, the gavel's down, court adjourned. It's time to move on. He loves me. He likes me. I'm his. That's the point. And then, and then 
you can live. You can live in peace. You can live with joy. You can live with rest. You, you can live each moment and enjoy that. You can live each person that the Lord brings into your life and care for that person, independent, completely independent. God is the one who judges me, and the court's adjourned. That's the fact. That's what Paul is teaching us. That is the way out of the misery in our lives. What I wanted to do today is I wanted to bring a friend and tell you what it looks like in real life. So Don Brady is going to come up. Met Donna. She's been coming here for a, a while, and she is uh, soon to retire this uh, spring. She's a school principal, and we went to Israel together. And when we were, we were at Caesarea Philippi, this is a place where uh, it's, it's famous for occult worship. And, and pagan sacrifices, and it's this is the place where Jesus chooses to ask Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ. And, he, and then the Lord responds, upon this rock I will build this church, right? And the gates of hell, which he's talking about, Caesarea Philippi, will not prevail against it. And so I had a mild devotion there, and, and then Donna came up and said, I, I got to tell you my story. And when she was telling me her story, I was thinking, Everyone needs to hear this story because this is the story of so many of our lives, and she has found the path to joy, and it, it, it wasn't a direct path, <laughs> but it sure started out well. So um, why don't you tell us about, about right. yourself? Let me tell you about my good life. Um, Jesus saw fit to give me Christian parents and Christian family. Um, I grew up in the church. In fact, when I was in the youth group, uh, the youth minister even called me Donna Do Good. Um, my, my uncle was a pastor, and I went to him. He answered my questions about, well, how do you know if you're a Christian? And so he prayed with me as I um, prayed to accept Christ. And I just, I had a very normal loving, suburban life growing up. I was very ordinary. But in seventh grade, I met the love of my life at the church skating rink. And um, he, he was something special. Uh, we began dating our senior year in high school and he was president of our senior class. He was president of the student council. He was most likely to succeed. Um, some people really even said, he's going to be president of the United States one day. Um, when we finished high school, we both went to Baylor. Again, he was president of our class at Baylor. He was our permanent class president. And I felt really special being the girl on his arm. We were married at Second Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. And was, was Beth Moore one of your bridesmaids? This she is, could have been. She could have been. <laughs> yes. The Hollywood version of this yes. would have Beth Moore up there. It, it would. Yeah. It was. Second Baptist Houston. Okay. Everything was perfect. It was. The chapel was full. Everyone was happy. Um, we moved to Fort Worth after we were married. My husband went to seminary. I was a school teacher. 
then he became a pastor, mm-hmm. and I was the pastor's wife. Mm-hmm. And really, my life was perfect. Sure. So if uh, you're judging yourself in, in, the, in the world courtroom, you're, you're doing good. The verdict's coming back. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and then what happened? Except. <laughs> Except um, about three years later, um, we were blessed with a set of twins, girl-boy twins. And as every married couple will experience, we just started to have struggles in our life um, with sick children, medical bills, and the grind of having young children and that young family life. And things, things really got pretty bad, and so I suggested that we needed counseling. And it was at that time that my husband told me everything I didn't know. And one of the things that he shared with me was that he had married me because he needed a good girl on his arm, but that now he was interested in something different. And I was devastated. Um, my own weaknesses of appearance were being mirrored right back to me. So I went home to Houston um, for a couple of weeks. We, we did ultimately separate. We, we um, went through some marriage counseling, but um, sadly, about a year and a half later, we did divorce. And I did really cry out to the Lord But instead of being reflective during this time like I should have been, I just wanted my perfect family back. Mm -hmm. And I was desperate to marry again. And so, um, sure enough, a few years down the road, I did marry again. Um, I wanted a husband and the image of a perfect family more than anything. That marriage, however, um, and the blended family that came with it caused unthinkable damage to my children. But even though I knew I had made a mistake two weeks into the marriage, I couldn't get another divorce. I already had the scarlet D for divorce on my chest, and so I just had to make it work. But when it became clear, and I, and I realized that my children were in harm's way, um, I, and there wasn't any hope uh, for things getting better, I divorced again. And yet still I insisted on being in control of my life and creating the appearance of a good life and a good family. And so I focused on my career at that point, and um, I earned a doctorate in leadership. But during the middle school um, years of my son's life, um, he started to act out. And by the time he reached high school, he was addicted to drugs. He was running away. He quit school. He was arrested and, and went to jail. And I'm trying to manage all of this chaos with counseling and rehab, and yet still trying to somehow keep the appearance of a respectable life, a respectable principle. 
I even wound up filing bankruptcy um, due to many rehabs and medical expenses, and, and that was humiliating. My life was falling apart, and the thing was, nothing, nothing that I was looking for, that I was working for, was bad. As the world would characterize it, it was good things. But that was the problem. I was wanting the good things more than I was wanting my relationship with the Lord. And even worse, sometimes I actually wanted the appearance of good things more than a really good family. And so it was easy to blame others for the heartache and for the terrible things that happened. But I had to face the truth. And and this verse comes from the passage that Matt was working from. And it says, God will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of man's heart. And he exposed the motives of my heart. And I had to admit that I am not always the good girl. That I can't, couldn't control my son's addiction. And I couldn't stand the thought of losing him to drugs. My life had been turned upside down on every level. Marriage, children, finances, health, and my job. And I had nowhere to turn except to the Lord. So it was my son's struggle that brought me to a breaking point. I was seeking help for him, and I I wound up sitting knee-to-knee with him and having to admit, Son, I admit everything is not good in our life. I had had a habit of pressing through every trial with a smile on my face and hard work and creating the appearance of everything's fine, everything's good. I was desperate to keep appearances of the good life. But in February of 2007, I wound up in the emergency room having emergency brain surgery. I had hit my head on a cabinet. I was in the hospital for a month, and then I was sent home to recover for six months. While I was at home recovering, Jesus met me on my sofa. And it was there that I started to read the Bible every day and pray and sing songs of worship. And you, many of you, some friends that I knew, but but even people that I didn't know, um, came and visited me at the hospital, uh, brought meals once I was home, sent me cards that I still have. Um, helped me to get additional counseling. And I got involved in um, women's Bible study, women's ministry, and even the beginning of Celebrate Recovery. And I finally saw the truth of my ugly, unattractive idols. And God changed my life. I'm flawed. I've been letting go of shame and learning to lead with compassion and vulnerability. I don't do everything right. 
And I'm still learning that my identity is not in a husband, my children, my job, or even in being a good girl. It's in being a follower of Jesus Christ. Right. I'll be retiring soon. And as I look to the second half of my life, I'm looking to become more like Christ in all of life. I know that some days will be good, some days will not be good, and I'm okay with that. I want to do scary things with Jesus, like share with the whole church all of my flaws and weaknesses. (laughs) So when we were in Israel, and we're at Caesarea Philippi, where the pagan sacrifice to the pagan god Pan. Matt had given a mini-sermon there, and it was the most soul-gripping experience for me in that whole trip, because that was my life, a life of searching after idols. So I took a picture, and I'm gonna frame that picture as a reminder that I am done chasing idols and I want to just worship the Lord. That's right. You don't care how other people judge you. You don't care how other courts judge you. You don't care how you judge you. Only the Lord is your judge. When I heard her story, Romans chapter 5 jumped into my head in that therefore you now have peace. With God through Christ Jesus. Yes. Now you live in peace. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. I I know some of you might have been coming to church for a while, but you might not have heard how to apply the gospel in this context of, of applying it to your identity. And what I would encourage you to do is to continue to come, try help make friends. Learn how to not just understand, I guess, uh, forgiveness as a, as 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 a means of having eternal life, but what eternal life means. And eternal life is not the hereafter only; it is it is here and now. It is coming to an understanding of the of this leaving a courtroom that that will constantly keep you enslaved, tying your identity to anything except that God alone is your judge. Is, is reckless and expensive. And, and God in, in, has given us these truths so that we might cling to these truths so that we might live the abundant life that he's promised. The trial's over. The verdict is in. Lord God, the Lord God has declared because of Jesus, we have inherited his righteousness and we are redeemed. We are set free And these are the heavy chains that we shake off of us, these doubts about all that. I know, listen, you hear her story, and she grew up in a great church, in a great Christian home. We need to understand that this is a life progress of learning how to apply the gospel into our ego identity. And it takes time, but here's what you do. You pray this. You pray God's Spirit would ping you. When, when you've left his courtroom and enter the courtroom of stupid. 
And when, you, when you're on a park bench and you're trying to win some perfect stranger that you will never see again and think that you can get him to like you more because you're borrowing someone else's condo, you can hear God's spirit go, Matt, Matt, you're, you're, stop fighting a war that's already been won. You can be forgotten, and I will never, ever forget you. You can be ignored, and I will not ignore you. You can go unloved. I love you. That's how to apply the gospel in a way that can choke this pride and keep it in submission. Let's pray to that end. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us understand how to, how to, how to get our, not our minds, but our souls, our emotions around not caring about being judged by you, by anyone, <laughs> by even ourselves, but coming to this knowledge that God alone, you have judged us and you have declared us righteous. Lord, I'd ask that you'd help us how to learn how to live under your great name and enjoy living in the shadow of the cross uh, at the exit of that empty tomb with our shoulders back, our head high, never inflated, because we belong to you, because you came and got us. That's where our hope is, Lord. Make it the center of our emotions and our identity, who we call ourselves, children of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.